Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. What does National Indigenous Peoples Day mean in 2021? How has the media changed in a pandemic? And you have to get a vaccination to go to work. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It is National Indigenous Peoples Day. And uh, considering uh, the stories of late, uh, is it having more impact in 2021 than it has in past years? Let's bring in Dr. Dan, uh, Dr. Don Laval Harvard, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association and director of Trent University, and is with us now. Dr. Don Laval Harvard, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. Before we get started, uh, can you give us any kind of update on Kamloops and and the story of the 215 uh, children's remains that were found below the site of that uh, residential school uh, a few weeks ago? That certainly launched a, a massive uh, conversation and, and hopefully shift in, in Canadians' thinking. Where is that story now? Well, I think the most important update on that story is the fact that, you know, especially here in Ontario, the provincial government provided, you know, $10 million to start the investigation into the residential school sites here in Ontario, because through the TRC, it was well known that these sites existed, not just, you know, for the tragic 215 in BC, but at many, many residential school sites across Canada. So there's still a lot more to be found. And that's what's happening right now is communities are starting to come forward and have the really hard conversations about how they're going to address starting to open up and and look for the other sites. Um, How much, how much um, uh, concern is there to get this done as soon as possible? Or is it, we've got a a, a lot more of consultation to do here. Uh, We just can't go in here uh, willy nilly. Uh, This is, but this is on people's minds and people want this resolved. Um, Will there be any speed to get to the bottom of these sites uh, anytime soon? Well, I think, there has to be that balance, and that's, as you said, the consultation, that's what that's all about, is to make sure that it, when it's done, it's done in a way that does not increase trauma for the First Nations involved. So it has to be done very carefully, and that's, that's really going to be key, because this is, even done in the best possible way, is still going to be extremely traumatizing for those communities, for those family members whose, whose loved ones are found in those unmarked graves. And, but I do think compared to when we had the release of the TRC and you look at you know, the requests from the TRC to assign, I think it was about a million and a half, uh, to investigate the potential sites across Canada to looking at, you know, $10 million just for the province of Ontario now. Certainly mm. there's a, a much needed sense of urgency that, you know, this was a crime. This does need to be addressed. It can't just be swept under the rug anymore, but that it does need to be done in a way that's not going to be, you know, that is going to minimize the harm and, and support healing. Uh, National Indigenous, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, does it mean anything more in 2021 than it did last year or in years past? Well, I think for me and for my community and my family, National Indigenous People Day, I mean, I've had people ask, like, is it right to say happy you know, how, how do we address this? And yeah, I good think, point. You know, darn right I'm happy. We are celebrating the fact that we have survived. We have survived centuries of attempts to make us disappear. I mean, physically, we've survived genocide as the 215 innocent souls has, 
has shown the country now. So we have a right to celebrate that we are still here. And we also have a right to celebrate that even compared to where we were 30, 50 years ago, we are reclaiming our traditions, our dances, our ceremonies, our language and our culture. Because if we look back, you know, those things were all banned. So absolutely, we're celebrating who we are as a people. We're celebrating the fact that we're still here. And we're celebrating the fact that we're growing stronger than ever with each generation. But this year, it's, it's particularly bittersweet because I think it's really been brought to everybody's attention, you know, exactly what we have survived. And in this case, it was genocide. Uh, fascinating poll that they're highlighting in uh, the National Post today. And uh, this was uh, conducted by uh, a new poll done by the Association for Canadian Studies, nonprofit focusing on increasing Canadians' understanding of our past, found that most people appreciate uh, statements coming from political leaders. These are the statements that acknowledge the, the Indigenous history of the land that they are standing on. We've certainly seen lots of politicians uh, acknowledge that before they start their uh, spiel. They'll say, we are sitting on the unceded uh, whatever territory of, of, of whatever band and such. And when we're, they were polling people on this, 50% of the respondents said they either strongly or somewhat agreed that politicians should regularly make that land acknowledgement, in contrast to 34% who disagree or 17% who don't have an opinion. But then when asked, uh, despite the support for having politicians say it, when asked if they personally uh, are living on that unceded Indigenous territory, only 25% of people agreed. What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, so it's good to say it, but that's you know, you know, I, I'm not going to say it. You go ahead and, and give us your opinion. Well, I mean, it just makes me laugh. That I mean, it just shows the need for improved education in this country. I mean, to your point, how many people don't realize or think that they are living on unceded territory? And if you are living in Canada, any dot of it anywhere, that you are living on Indigenous territories originally, and. You know, it's important to acknowledge that. And by acknowledging that, it needs to be more than just a, you know, quick Treaty 20 conversation and then we move on and forget about that. The the whole point of doing it is to do it with heart and understanding of that process of, of how we got from the original inhabitants to having the right and the privilege and the honor of being able to live and work in what was Indigenous territories and, and what that process cost for people. I mean, it's sort of the same kind of conversations we have around Remembrance Day. It's, you know, it's, it's recognizing what people lost so that you could have that privilege today. And not so that people can feel guilty, but so that we can understand how we got to this place of inequity. I mean, it was interesting, your little preamble there talking about education and the difference between equality versus equity. And how do we make sure that everybody gets what they need to reach their full potential? And that has never been more true than for First Nations children in this country. So we like to acknowledge it, but we don't want to do the work beyond that. Is that what that's saying? Or, well, what is it saying? Well, I mean, the funniest part is how many people don't even know what to acknowledge. In, here at the university, I can't tell you how many times in a week I'll get people sending in a note saying, I want to have to do a land acknowledgement, and, and I don't know where what territory I'm in. You know, people can tell you more about the Treaty of Versailles than they can tell you about the Treaty of the Land that they're standing on. And people don't understand that there are vast chunks of this country that were not ceded through treaties and what that process means from how we went from occupying the entirety of Canada to occupying less than 0.5 of a percent of our original territories and, and what that process, what that was. 
So a lot of people, you know, they want to acknowledge it, um, but they don't really understand the history of, of that process yet. And, you know, I've, I've done a lot of educational sessions that by the end of it, people are just absolutely astonished to realize even that, just how little of our territory we have left. If you took all of the reserves across Canada, clumped them together, it wouldn't even cover half of the, what the Navajo reservation is in Arizona. And when you stop and think about that for a minute, about how little is left and what had to happen to get to that point, that's what people need to know. And that's where people often don't want to think about it because, quite frankly, you know, I've, I've had a number of people say when they actually understand the process and what happened for the settlers to be able to claim those lands, you know, they feel ashamed at, at being the beneficiaries of that process. So considering it was all once Indigenous land at one point, is it odd to stand up and say, well, the piece of it I'm standing on now is this? Exactly. For people to say that, you know, they're not yeah. standing on treaty territory. I mean, it's, it was all Indigenous land, and yeah. to try to suggest otherwise is just fundamentally absurd. But it shows the failure of the education system here in Canada, or in fact, maybe one could argue that it shows the success of an education system that whitewashed that history completely and you know, eradicated that whole process, eradicated the existence of the original inhabitants of this land. You know, we were talking about this over the weekend here at our place that, um, um, you know, because obviously my kids are being taught. I wasn't taught any of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were saying it's like, well, if they were trying to wipe out the culture, why would they be teaching us about it? So this is where the correction needs to be made. I mean, obviously, uh, not only were they trying to wipe out the culture, they're trying to wipe out any history of that as well. Well, and why are they teaching us about it? That's 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 a very recent shift. I mean, I was in fact, yes, it is just home for a ceremony recently, and talking with a friend of mine, and a, a colleague of ours was talking about, you know, why didn't I learn this history when I was in school? You know, we were talking about yeah. the two hundred and fifteen in the residential schools, and he says, you know, I feel very angry and very cheated that I didn't learn this. It's good that his children are learning, but why didn't we learn? And and somebody pointed out, we didn't learn that in school. Because it wasn't history. It was still going on. The last residential school yeah. closed in 1996. So it wasn't yet history, interestingly. And, you know, to try to obliterate that, to try to erase it, to try to whitewash it, I mean, that that's how we create this image of, of Canada the pure. And, I mean, even realizing the vast differences in the amount of reserve land that is left for Canadian First Nations people compared to the Native Americans in the United States, we have this glorified vision of because we had a treaty process that somehow Indigenous people in Canada ended up better off and it wasn't as violent. But when we look at the outcome, we have less than 0.5 of a percent, not even half of what the Navajo Reserve is. I, I don't think we're better off. I, I see uh, overlaps in this discussion with with the uh, statue debate and the debate over names and such, which I, I don't necessarily want to get into at this point. But as an aspect of that, you know, it, it seems as if we're looking for a symbol, looking for something to point at, looking for someone to point at, someone thing to blame. So if that's a statue of John A. McDonald, so be it. What I'm having a hard time with is, well, you know, starting with John A. McDonald, but ending with Pierre Trudeau, who opened the last set of schools. Um, what about all the people that voted for them? What about the rest of us? What about our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents, our great great grandparents? 
how can you chastise the people they voted in, but not the people? Uh, so it seems as if we're looking for, you know, uh, symbols to tear down without looking inward. And again, I, I don't disagree with what's going on, and I think there's, there's lots of debate around that, but it seems as if rather than look at ourselves, we're looking at it was our leader's fault. That's what it was, thinking that, you know, I, I had nothing to do with electing that leader. Well, I think the interesting part, I, I had this conversation uh, with my grandmother when, when she was still alive on, on my father's side, who's non-Indigenous, and you know, we were talking about the fact that when my father was young, I mean, they used to have the church mission, you know, encouraging people in the church. They were donating funds to help the poor Native children in the schools so that they could learn. And, and so I think, to a certain degree, we absolutely have to hold those accountable who are in charge of those legislation and who knew, who had access to the letters from the experts who went into the schools and told them, you know, these kids have less of a chance of survival than soldiers did in the Second World War because of the deplorable conditions. You know, they were getting these reports and just ignoring them, as opposed to your average citizen who was, you know, maybe if they were lucky, sitting in a church somewhere getting these pleas for, you know, how can you help the poor, you know, at that time, Indian children, and thinking, so looking back historically at what a good job the system did, of hiding what conditions were in First Nations territories and, and up until very recently, you know, looking at what a good job they did at erasing that history from our textbooks. So the average person, you know, I think there's a, a real uh, a progression between those who are truly ignorant in that they don't want to know versus those who just haven't had the opportunity to know because they're in an environment and a system that has covered everything up very deliberately and people are finally starting to, man, to demand a difference. And I'm you know, really hoping, like you said, those, those kids in these current generations, you know, when they come forward, it, it's a very different conversation. You know, you talked about that churchgoer way back when who may have donated to the cause thinking that they were helping uh, the situation, think that, that, thinking that they were helping to educate. Where, where did that go horribly wrong? At what stage did this you know, uh, because, it, it, you know, there's a portion, excuse my ignorance, there's a portion that thought that they were educating and helping, and then there were others that were trying to beat the Indian out of the child. There's a huge difference there. Well, and the really interesting part, I, I had done some research on this at one point, and it was a progression. And, in fact, that's why originally our people were happy to send our children to schools because we wanted our children to learn the skills to be able to survive in this new world. We want right. them to be able to read and write and numbers and learn English because, you know, they're going to need that to be successful, of course. And initially, in fact, the schools were extremely successful to the point where somewhere around uh, early 1900s, um, non-Indigenous people started complaining about the fact that they felt it was not a appropriate use of funds to be training those Indians to be competing um, with white people or to be being, you know, having to work alongside the God-fearing white people. And it was a direct quote from uh, an MP who sort of introduced legislation that said from that point forward, they were changing their policy to train the Indian for life in his own environment. So they went from a vision of actually providing skills to wait a minute, we don't want this. We don't want them integrating. We want them, you know, they would get some basic um, 
Christianizing some of, you know, what they called civilization to fit them for a life in their own environment, which is essentially code for we're not going to give them any skills to be able to compete, to be able to, to actually thrive. And, and that was, a, it went horribly wrong after that, where it was a, a very clear change. And that, you know, unfortunately is the direct result of racism. So do we know, is there a period what we know of where it went horribly wrong? Or just as you said, was it it's such a gradual thing that people didn't understand or realize this was changing or what was happening? Well, it, 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 the going horribly wrong, I mean, began when, with that change in, in attitude from wanting to see this as a means of um, Indigenous people being able to have skills to survive and changing it to, you know, fitting them for life in their own environment. But then there's a series of changes that really snowballed and things kept getting worse in terms of, you know, originally the federal government was providing funding to the various religious orders to educate the children. And at a certain point, you know, they withdrew that funding and but still allowed the churches to carry on these schools as they see fit. So things went really radically wrong after that. Not to say that they were great before, but, you know, it, just, it kept snowballing in terms of we now have these schools that the children became slave labor to support their own assimilation and their own abuse because they were the ones, you know, having to be used as slaves in the field and then, you know, having to serve the, the priests and the nuns in the evening and, and being fed nothing but gruel themselves. Like it, it went tragically wrong at various points. And there was, you know, even the, the Bryce report went in, you know, uh, Bryce went in to investigate and saw the conditions and said how deplorable they were. And, and I, I do believe it was Sir Johnny McDonald who said, in his opinion, they look just fine. And, you know, that's why it's important when we talk about Sir Johnny McDonald or some of this leadership that you were mentioning, we need to tell the truth. And that's what truth and reconciliation is all about. We will never get to reconciliation until we start telling the truth. And it's the truth about these people, and at that point, these men, who made decisions, even though they were being informed about the horrors of these schools, because they were making, they made the decisions to continue. They made the decisions to allow this to happen. And they, in fact, encouraged it based on their own racist assumptions. And so we can't hold them up as heroes in our society without telling the truth of what they did. Dr. Don Laval, Harvard with us, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association, director of Trent University on National Indigenous Peoples Day and how far we've come and how much farther we have to go. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're very welcome. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, it's funny. um, uh, We were talking to our last guest about a completely unrelated issue. And then uh, as we were chatting, I realized what uh, more an extensive uh, issue the media and what we uh, digest as news uh, needed covering here. And, you know, I I guess this started and maybe didn't start, but certainly was was more pronounced during the Donald Trump era in the U.S. presidency when uh, all of a sudden uh, everything was fake. Um, Everything's fake news. Everything that was said that wasn't about him or that wasn't positive about him was fake. Uh, started creating uh, scenarios where the institutions that we are all are all supposed to trust in order to have a civil society uh, now are also fake. And, you know, who do you believe? You don't believe the head doctors. You don't believe uh, uh, politicians, uh, scientists. Who do you believe? And then after uh, that era, we, we enter into a, a pandemic or in that era, we enter into a pandemic where uh, it's really important that we all row in the same direction in order to get through it 
And that seemed that it, uh, it, it was a, a very difficult task and is only becoming more and more difficult uh, with time. So to talk about all of this, Jeffrey Dvorkin is with us, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto's Scarborough uh, campus and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age and is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and I hope you are too. Yes, thanks so much. It, it seemed to start with Donald Trump, although I'm not sure if he just took it over the goal line or not, where all of a sudden we just started questioning everything. And then I, I think uh, time has proven to us the only thing that we shouldn't have trusted was the man telling us not to trust everybody else. But how did things shift during this era? Well, I think part of it is that in a digital culture, the lack of a universally recognized authority uh, becomes more and more difficult to to obtain, since everybody's opinion is as valid as everyone any other opinion. You have this idea of well, who can you trust? And maybe you can't trust the media, or maybe you can't trust the government, or the universities, or the churches. Um, and increasingly, that environment of doubt has crept into almost everything that we do now, and it becomes really problematic, certainly for people who are trying to run businesses or media organizations or universities or governments. Um, The idea is that we're seeing that people distrust expertise, and this has become, in my opinion, a pretty big problem for all of us. Uh, you said everyone has a say. Uh, we don't know who to trust in this fog of everything. Uh, traditional media has been regulated for obvious reasons in the past. Lots of debates and fights over that, whether that should be done on the Internet as much. Um, so is it that lack of an authoritative or, or, or some, some, some sort of governing body over this? that allows that to happen? Does it need regulated? Is Will that help this? Well, it could help, but also damage it at the yeah. same time. Yeah. If, say, the government, the federal government, decides that everything on the Internet needs to go through some kind of gatekeeping, uh, my sense is that this will produce a tremendous reaction against government interference. There will be calls for... Uh, let's uh, let's uh, restore free speech, even if that speech is of dubious quality, and it'll only serve to exacerbate the tensions in society. And I think that th- that whether you're at the local and and municipal or provincial or federal level, this is going to be a real challenge for politicians who are hoping that the public will support them for what they have done or have not done, and what they are proposing to do. And then who gets to deliver that message? Will it be the media, or will the politicians try to go around the media, or will the blogosphere and and social media start to determine which messages are reliable? And that, that's because that's, right now we're in, a, in quite a unique uh, position there's never been anything like this before, certainly not in the last, for the last generation. So is this something that time will police? Eventually the dust will settle here. We'll, we'll be able to decipher 
truth from fiction or uh, how will we move forward on this? <laughs> That's the question we're all asking. The marketplace of ideas in the past has been the place where the best ideas seem to rise to the top of the area of public discourse. But now we're seeing a lot of other ideas coming to the fore. And people are saying, well, maybe we should be questioning all these things. Maybe we don't need vaccines. Maybe we shouldn't be wearing masks. Why are we believing in these doctors? Who are they to tell us what to do? It's that kind of creeping democratization that digital media has pushed forward. And it's not, you know, we're all great believers in democracy, but sometimes someone's stupid opinion is not, does, should not have the same value as someone's considered opinion. We've certainly seen this uh, in Canada and um, with the pandemic, with NASI and Health Canada, uh, in regard to the changing uh, protocols around the drug AstraZeneca. These are two government bodies, or certainly uh, Health Canada is a, a federally government body. NASI is the National Association, uh, uh, National Advisory Committee, sorry, on immunization. Uh, there was a massive, massive confusion four or five times uh, towards the beginning. And well, once the vaccine started to uh, to come to the forefront, uh, now we're starting to see, uh, well, I don't think the last issue had, uh, there was a press conference from NASI, but combined information with Dr. Tam and Health Canada. Uh, but it seemed by the time that information came out last week, which was on, uh, I think this the last time was that they recommended uh, um, Pfizer or Moderna instead of AstraZeneca as the second shot. Now, that was based in science, obviously. And, and again, it's always good to have views from different lenses. It's always good to, uh, you know, for the left hand to be aware of the right hand or what the right hand is doing as well. I think this was less about science and and more about communication and, and, and just not knowing what was uh, being said and, and working within one's own silo. This doesn't help when it comes to trust of these agencies, does it? No, it doesn't. And I've seen on, in, on the Twitterverse, for whatever that's worth, people saying, well, who is this NASI uh, organization? Who, who takes part in this? How do they have their bona fides? Who has recommended them? And why do they seem to be spreading different kinds of information and in different times of the day? Um, and this is from journalists who are starting to ask, well, wait a minute, just because, I mean, maybe journalists are co complicit in spreading this suspicion of expertise, but there are a lot of questions about who's giving us the information and how should we know what to believe and what to trust. And I think right now we're in a, things seem to be slowly getting better, more people are getting vaccinated, the number of people who are getting sick, that number keeps going down. But at the same time, there's the sense of uh, unease about how are we really going to emerge out of what we've been through and what lies ahead for us? And, and of course, journalists are the worst predictors in the world. We're not, we're not soothsayers, but it's really troubling that people can't seem to get a straight answer, whether it's out of Queens Park or Ottawa or wherever. And, and day by day, the information seems to be changing. It's very frustrating.
And it seems as if we're in a life of extremes. Either you're on that side or you're on the other side. And the agreeing to disagree in the middle or finding any sort of consensus uh, seems to be gone. I remember it was, uh, you know, in a previous government, it was they're stifling science, they're stifling science, they're stifling science. And are they stifling science or are they just stopping from what's happened with NASI and Health Canada from happening. I mean, you know, there's a difference between stifling science and then giving everybody who thinks they've got an opinion the microphone to try to sway public opinion. Where's where's the happy medium there? Well, that's exactly right. There doesn't seem to be one at this point. Part of it is that the way it seems to work out is that you have a lot of differing opinions, and eventually something emerges which feels like a consensus. And and maybe that's the point where we are right now. We are at a kind of a pre-consensus stage of trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Uh, so it, it, we, we often hear the media is on the left, the media is on the right. How is the media doing in all of this? I think they're doing pretty well. I mean, I've been reading and seeing and watching some spectacular journalism, which is trying to make sense out of a very complicated uh, condition right now. Uh, just last night on CNN, they did a, uh, a very long documentary on the origins of the January 6th insurrection, interviewing people who were there, who protested, who committed apparently crimes, because some of them have been charged with it. It was a phenomenal uh, digestion of what has happened. It was some of the best television journalism I've seen in quite a while. And I think what we're looking for, what I'm looking for anyway, is a way of regathering perspective. We have so many bits of information that sort of come out of nowhere and disappear into thin air. We need more context, I think, in the journalism to help serve the people and give people a sense of okay, here's what's going on, here's what you should be aware of. And I think that was, I was really pleased to see that on CNN, although they ran it on late on a Sunday night, which I'm sure is not the prime audience, but it was great to see it, and, it, and it, it'll, it'll be on their website, I'm sure. I mean, we uh, and more, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. It, it seems that we've also blurred the line between reporting and commentary. Yes. Uh, and I get this a lot from my audience. I mean, I'm, I'm paid to offer commentary. I'm not necessarily a reporter. Uh, so I will give opinion. Um, it, you were talking about CNN. And then when you say CNN, the opposite Fox comes to mind. And we see what's going on down there. Uh, and it, it seems that one is on one side and one is on the other. Have they taken that too far? And I can remember back to watching uh, the night that Donald Trump was elected. And I was literally flipping around all the major U.S. Uh, networks and the Canadian networks as well. And it, it was as if CNN, well, CNN was the absolute last one to declare uh, President Trump the winner. And this was after the Canadian networks had done it. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, like this is this is obvious now. And, and being in the media, I sometimes refuse to believe that we are biased, but are biased. But it, it, it certainly seems, you know, at that point, man, it, it solidified that Fox is on the right. CNN is on the left. Is that valuable? Well, I think there is such a phenomenon as, as bias confirmation that people will seek out ideas and opinions and news streams that confirm their own points of view. Yeah. And, and 
let's be frank, it is good business for news organizations, especially in the States, to get people upset and riled up and, and you know, flash that, uh, that Chiron breaking news. You know, something has happened and you should be concerned or you should be upset and angry because that's the way they're going to aggregate their the audiences that they gained through the Trump years, which were that was a considerable uh, bounty for media organizations, which made a lot of money on the anxiety created by Donald Trump. Uh, and after the election, people aren't quite as anxious politically until something else happens. And I fear that news organizations are maybe trying to take advantage of that and stoking our anxiety and telling us we should be nervous. Um, that's not good for us, not good for anybody's blood pressure, and certainly not good for democracy. Uh, living through a global pandemic, has it changed this? Because, you know, it wasn't just a few months. It's like a year and a half. Pretty hard to go through this and come out the other side exactly the same way as you went in. Many people now are evaluating what is important, what isn't important. Has this changed the way we view things? We don't want the BS anymore. We're tired of this stuff. Or is that just a, f- a fleeting moment? Well, no, I think so. I think you put your finger on something really uh, significant that what's happened now is that people have been sort of in their own little cocoons and isolation for the last 16 months. There's something I sense really secure about that. And the idea of stepping out of that back into whatever kind of social life we may have after this is over, I think people are nervous, at least in my chats with folks at the supermarket or at the at the pharmacy, they're saying, yeah, we're, we're outside now, but we're nervous about this. We're going to have to develop or re- rediscover our own sense of uh, courage about how do we comport ourselves in a post-pandemic society. And it'll be different because the businesses will be different and the media will be different and whether people go into offices will be different or go into classrooms it's all going to change in a way that will it won't be recognizable, I think. And, and we're starting to see the beginnings of that. We won't be going back to what we had before. It'll be interesting to see what is created now. So as a result, do you think we will be more divided or will this unite us? Well, <laughs> I think it depends where you're coming from. If you're, if you're still angry about certain things, you'll, yeah. you'll, be, you'll feel divided. But I sense that people are relieved that they are, there's the beginning of this kind of socialization that, that that's been deprived for them for many, many months now. I, I see this just walking around in Toronto. People are, are friendlier. They're saying hello. They're not, you know, no embraces hmm. yet. But there's a, a sense of, oh, we got through that. And it's nice to see a, nice to see a smiling face. I think that's going to be part of the of the vibe. It'll be interesting to see how the politicians handle this. Will the electorate have a have memory loss and forget that what they went through and just enjoy the moment of rediscovering a certain a certain kind of freedom? And how will the prime minister and the premier going into an election? How will they manage that? Will people have short memories saying, well, we're, we were upset at the way the vaccines 
rolled out or were not rolled out, but that's finished now. We're all vaccinated and we're forgiving of how the government seemed to lose control of the narrative of COVID. Uh, and now that we're past that, we're going to be relaxed and we're going to keep voting. I mean, that's what the politicians are, are hoping they'll be able to do. I uh, can't let you go, Jeff, without asking your uh, thoughts on Bill C-10. Uh, and, and is it getting the attention it needs considering we are in a pandemic? Oh, I don't think we are paying close enough attention to it. Uh, this is the this is the regulation of big media um, and a re reexamination of the uh, the broadcasting act in by Ottawa. Um, I think the the federal government is, has misplaced this completely. The the this bill will probably die on the order paper once an election is called, and then when a new parliament comes in, if it's another liberal government they will have to rewrite that legislation. But right now, it's a, it's a mess. Uh, one last question. I keep thinking them as I'm talking to you, Jeff. Um, what advice do you have for those out there that are confused and losing faith in, uh, in the system, per se? Well, part of it is, uh, as, I, as I said in the book, um, that you need to have a better set of critical facilities in dealing with everything. We're not going to rely on the old gatekeepers, uh, whether it's media, government, uh, universities, or churches. I think it would, what I've told my students is it's very good to ask someone, how do you know? Where does this come from? Just be a little more, not cynical, but more skeptical about what's going on around us for the purpose of informing our lives as Canadian citizens, but not deforming them. So the basic rules of journalism now apply to everyone. This is actually, you, got, you put your finger on it. This is exactly what's happened, is that we have all become our own journalists, in, both in a good way and in some cases not such a good way. But the very fact that we, we are encouraged by asking questions about how do you know, where does this come from, who gave you that information, what is the source of this? will only help us to have a more healthy media environment. And I, that's so I, in the end, I'm kind of optimistic. Jeffrey Borkin with us, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many have been chatting all the way through this pandemic what work is going to look like coming out the other end of this. Um, many have talked about it in, in forms of technology, but what about vaccination? As we hit uh, 75% of the eligible population with their first dose, 20 with the second, uh, soon uh, or later, sooner or later, things are going to uh, go back to what we thought or what is the new normal, perhaps. And what does that mean as far as vaccinations? Uh, you know, we've certainly heard with long-term ter- uh, long care workers, some do not want to get vaccinated. There's a, a higher-than-average hesitancy rate in some cases there. Uh, so all the uh, the tenants, the the uh, the older folks have been vaccinated, but not all of the workers. Should they, in a situation like that, for example, uh, be mandatory vaccinations? What are your rights? 
Uh, what are the employer's rights? Let's bring in Fiona Martin, employment lawyer and associate with Sam Fierro to mark an LLP and is with us now. Fiona, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Is this going to be a big problem right around the corner? I mean, can an employer make you get vaccinated? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, unlike what we've been seeing across the U.S. with companies like Delta, with the rolling out of mandatory vaccine vaccination policies, with the exception of long-term, hair, long-term care homes in Ontario at the moment, there currently is no federal or provincial legislation that requires employees to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. So what that means is that for most workplaces, an employer cannot penalize or punish an employee for refusing to get vaccinated. Um, now, every employer has to be very careful because they have to consider things like potential breach of privacy claim and potential human rights claim, particularly if the decision to not get vaccinated is related to a human rights code ground like um, a medical disability or a religious belief. Um, I mean, that being said, an employer is allowed to introduce a policy strongly encouraging employees to get vaccinated in order to curb the spread. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which side of the debate you're on, um, there's there's no, I guess, teeth to the policy because there's no supporting legislation. So in other words, if you say no, that's the answer, no. And it doesn't matter what the reason is. That doesn't change things? As it is now, um, it, it'll also depend on the workplace as well. Like, for example, if you were required to be vaccinated, like I'll give, if you, your job requires international travel, right. um, as vaccine passports start to roll out, there may be some airlines that refuse to allow you to fly on the airline without being vaccinated. If international travel is a requirement of your job in a situation like that, like an employer could have an obligation, sorry, an employer can impose an obligation to get vaccinated. But for the most part, there is no legislated requirement for employees to get vaccinated in the workplace. And what was the situation or what is the situation with long-term care and and personal support workers and such? Is that now mandatory for them? It is mandatory, but of course, like, it's still subject to the regular right. exceptions. So human rights and privacy yeah. being being the most common. I think human rights, if you can show that you have a medical disability or you have a religious belief, um, there needs to you need to make that aware to your employer and the employer has a duty to accommodate. So even with respect to policies, you can introduce a policy encouraging employees to get vaccinated. Um, as long as there is an exception for, again, medical disability or religious belief. What about those in the workplace that are vaccinated and don't feel comfortable around those that who are not vaccinated? Do they have any rights? That's a good question. I mean, employers do have an obligation to provide a health and safety, safe workplace to employees. And that might be a little hard to reconcile with the idea that they can't force their employees to be vaccinated. Um, but there are other ways to prevent the spread of the virus in the workplace. That could mean getting them to wear a mask, working in isolation, preventative screens, working in shifts to minimize contact. But as long as 
like I, I do understand that there will be employees that don't feel comfortable going to work. But at the end of the day, like if you were vaccinated, the understanding is right. that, I mean, to, to whatever extent the vaccines are effective, it's protecting you. Right. So the people that are at a disadvantage are the people that choose not to be vaccinated, mm-hmm. which is why employees can employers can introduce things like uh, social distancing, masks, et cetera. So is uh, are more guidelines needed here uh, as we get uh, closer to going back? Uh, is a list of industries needed where this is an issue or is does this just really depend on the individual situation and company? I think a list. I mean, as of now, there is no current legislated list. I think a legislated list could be implemented down the road. Um, I think it would provide a lot of clarity. Um, it'll help employers to enforce policies. Um, I think it certainly would be helpful, but as it is right now, it, it has yet to be introduced. Do you see this as becoming a problem, Fiona, down the road in the next year or so? I, I, absolutely. I, I think there is, just because there isn't a lot of clarity in terms of the law, the more ambiguity there is, the more difficult it is for employers to navigate. Um, and I think we will see a lot of human rights or potential privacy or, or wrongful dismissal claims arise as a result of it. Uh, we see it seems that this is going to be more of an issue in the United States than it is in Canada. I mean, Canada already has 75 uh, percent of those eligible already with the yeah. first dose. Uh, America came out of the blocks really fast and, and then sort of uh, waned after a bit and are sitting at, I guess, 53 uh, percent with the latest numbers I had. Uh, is there anything we can learn from them or is it just two totally different systems and what happens in one does not necessarily happen in the other? Um, that's a good, good question. I mean, I think. At the end of the day, the importance of educating employees, like, sure, right now you can't force them to get vaccinated, but there's a lot of workplaces that are hosting seminars and question and answers um, with, with physicians about vaccinations and vac- why it's important to get vaccinated. I think public education is going to be the most important way. I don't know the extent that I don't know how much the U.S. is engaging in practices like that, but I I certainly think that Canadian employers have started and will continue to do that in the upcoming weeks. This is going to affect so many situations other than employment. I mean, we've talked about travel, for example, uh, and, you know, you have to be fully vaccinated uh, or you have to, you know, they're talking about vaccine passports and such. The same problem will come up in these other areas as well, will it not? I mean, for example, travel. Uh, I, I mean, my occupation, I choose not to be vaccinated. I want to travel. I'm testing negative. I choose not to be vaccinated. This is going to happen across the board, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really will. And in the context of employment law, I mean, it's like, like I said before, if traveling is a part of, of your job, we're going to run yeah. into an issue. Um, I mean, the same, whether it's an employer or an airline, even airlines are going to run into the same issue where there are, they have to, they're a service provider, they have an obligation to accommodate these human rights grounds, so religious beliefs, medical disability, et cetera. So it's, have you it's s- certainly... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish up. I, I think it's, it's going to become an issue, but hopefully the government will introduce some legislation that provides employers and employees with a little bit more clarity.
Uh, have you seen or heard of anything like this yet, or is it still too early? I mean, I'm sure employment lawyers are trying to manage this before the problem gets here. Uh, how much discussion is there on this? Yeah, we, we've our firm has definitely been getting a lot of calls from empo- both employers and employees about their rights. Um, many employers are already starting to draft policies. Um, but like I said, they're, they're policies that encourage um, the vaccination, but with exceptions for, with clear exceptions for human rights in the process for accommodation. Fiona Martin with us, employment lawyer and associate with Sanfiero Tamarkin LLP, talking about mandatory workplace vaccinations. Can you refuse uh, to get vaccinated? Fiona, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.